I'm sure. I feel like <laughs> I feel like every time I preach, there's like there's and there's like that little bit of the room that knows how I am and how much I overthink stuff, and then also knows that I'm in seminary. So it's like I want to get up in the room and be like, "Hi, my name is Nathan. I'm in seminary," and you would all be like, "Hi, Nathan," because <laughs> you know what you're in for. Uh, all right, so. Uh, for anybody who's just now watching the stream online, for anybody in here who might not have been able to be here for a little bit or might be new, uh, in case you all don't know, we as a church have been collectively reading through the Bible chronologically. Uh, if we are doing so with the aid of a tool called the Bible Recap. And if you don't know what that is and would like to jump in, just ask any of the staff members. We can, can help get you set up with some materials. Uh, but anyways, it's it's a great... It's a great resource, and you truck right along, and the lady in charge of it, she gives all kinds of extra great context, really good at summarizing the material. It's, you would probably wind up enjoying it a lot more than what you think right off the top of your head. But anyways, since uh, two weeks ago, we talked about Exodus, and then we had Baptism Sunday, and then now you all are, if you're keeping track, right around where Numbers is. And I'm certain that many of you all thought you were off the hook and didn't have to hear a sermon about Leviticus. You're wrong. Because we're going to do it. We're going to try to cover all of Leviticus. And I have, I usually don't keep like very strict notes. I have to because there's too much and there's too little time. Like I'm going to keep an eye on that and keep an eye on this. And hopefully we're going to truck right along. So, book of Leviticus. I want to already kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room with Leviticus. It's a tough book to read. It really is. The, the way Carrie summarized it last week in the announcements where she goes, okay, if you don't know Leviticus, it's blood, guts, boils, kill something. Uh, blood, guts, boils. There you go. That's Leviticus. And so it's really, really hard to know what to do with that. And if you don't know what to do with it, it can be even more difficult of what's the point of reading it. If it looks like this just strange rule book on how to kill things. And don't feel bad because even whenever you read the New Testament, that comfort food, the stuff that you like to read, it gets even more confusing because do we have 2 Corinthians? Um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says... Something very, very strange where he says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. If you don't know what the letter is, the letter is the law. What we've been reading. Okay. So Paul just called the law the letter of death. And the Spirit gives life. So that should settle it, right? I don't have to read it. I don't need it. It's the letter of death. Well, at the same time, the exact same guy to Timothy, can you pull that up real quick, writes this. In 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good. Amen. Now what? Now Paul's just starting to sound a little schizophrenic here. He just called it the letter of death. And now he calls it Good. Well, how is it good? And Paul tells us how it's good. He says, if one uses it lawfully. Okay. Well, 
I don't really go around killing goats on altars. How exactly do I use this thing lawfully here now today? Hopefully, I can, the Spirit can help you out with that. I'm just going to be talking a bunch. So, what is Leviticus? Functionally, what is Leviticus? Well, Leviticus is the middle book of the law. So whenever Paul writes about the law, or whenever Jesus talks about the law, any of the scribes, the Pharisees, all throughout Scripture, and the New Testament especially, if they say the law, they mean all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All five are the law, because all five have different kinds of rules and prescriptions in them for people to do. On top of having stories and songs and things like that, there are laws interspersed throughout. And what Leviticus is specifically is the sacrificial system of the law. So in these laws, you've got two different kinds of laws. Primarily, you've got civil laws. Those are the ones about how I treat you and how you treat me, how we structure society, right? If I unintentionally or intentionally try to embezzle X amount of things away from you, I pay you X amount of things back. If, if uh, a young couple does not stay pure until a wedding day, then that guy has to now pay the full dowry to her family now. Those kinds of things. It's how we want to treat one another. And then you have ceremonial laws. Those are how you are going to interact with God as an ancient Hebrew. And that is what primarily Leviticus is. It's how do we interact with God in our space. So right at the end, because it's been a minute since you all were in Exodus, so I'm going to remind you, right at the end of Exodus, they build this tabernacle. It's a mobile temple of worship for God's people that they can carry around while they are wandering around out in the wilderness and whenever they are moving around eventually throughout conquest and things like that. So whenever they built the tabernacle, you've got this big kind of courtyard thing like that. And then you've got this tent in the middle of the courtyard, and that is cut in half. And then right here, up front, you're going to have an altar. That's where you kill the things. Right here, you've got a wash basin. That's where you wash the things. Okay? Pretty simple so far. Then you're going to have a table for some bread, and then you're going to have a lamp that lights the whole thing up. And in here, you're going to have the Ark of the Covenant. And in this whole space behind this curtain, you don't go in there because that's the Holy of Holies. If you go in there, you're going to die. It's made very clear you're probably going to die if you go in there. And at the end of Exodus, whenever they finish building this thing, the glory cloud that has been leading them throughout the day comes down and fills this space. And it says that it resides right over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and between the cherubs, and that's the mercy seat. And God says, this is now where I'm going to stay. When you set up the tabernacle, I will reside here. When you don't see my cloud leading you, this is where to expect me to be, right here above this Ark. Now, Here comes the challenge. And this is why Leviticus is here. Is how do we allow God to stay here? Because you see, there's this thing in ancient Hebrew mindsets of sacred space. 
And this all has to do with holiness. And holiness isn't, there's, there's, in the ancient Hebrew mind, yes, there's a certain level of morality to it, but that's not primarily what we're talking about because holy just means set apart, something other, something that I'm not. They understood that. And in order for God to exist in a space, the space has to be holy or sacred. And that is, it has less to do with because, ooh, you, you're so lowly. and has more to do with him because he's so holy. It's really about him at this point. And if he's going to be there and for you to not die, it's going to have to be sacred. You're going to have to be sacred. I, the, the simplest way I can put it, if you're still not tracking with it, it's kind of like if we were to shut off all the lights right now and the light that's on right now, is God's holiness, right? And we shut off the lights, and I say, this little, this little patch of area here, th- th- this would be dark? All right, we're going to try to let the dark stay there and let the lights turn on. If I turn on the lights, the dark's just going to go away. All dark is, is the absence of light. So all unholiness is, is the lack of holiness. And if, if unholiness comes into contact with holiness, something's going to give. You're going to be the thing that has to go. And so what God is trying to do is be exceedingly abundantly gracious and say, hey, here's how things stay holy so I can stay with you. And so what he does is he provides them with a system of of sacrifices and of varying different kinds of things they can do throughout their life. So there's going to be these kind of weird things in there that you're like, what on earth is like instructions on mold? What to do if there's mold? Uh, instructions on what to do if there's leprosy. Now, that one seems kind of evident because, you know, leprosy is contagious. But all at the same time, in the ancient world, leprosy was a catch-all for anything your skin isn't supposed to be doing. So, like, this could be leprosy that's really contagious and your arm might fall off. Or it could just be a really nasty, contagious rash that we don't want going around to everybody. They were, it was just a catch-all tool. That's why there's all these different rules and regulations for... And if the priest says it looks kind of like this, and if you turn it like this, and your scabs and your hairs twinkle in the sunlight, or it looks white or whatever, then you're fine and you're clean. You're like, what on earth? God, why do you care about rashes? Or like, why do you care about the black mold under my sink? And then there's this whole big long thing about bodily fluids. That gets real fun. Uh, and, and it's not discriminatory in whose bodily fluids are better or worse. There's nothing about male, female. You're, all of your fluids are equally not sacred. <laughs> and that has... Not to do with your personal sin state or your personal holiness state, but rather whenever we see these things like rashes and mold and fluids, these are symbols for life and death. That in the beginning we saw a God who created life and we as people introduced death. And death comes in varying different shapes and sizes. So sometimes it's like mold where we see organic things degrade and break down because there's this stuff just living on it and eating away at it. That's, that's very death-like. That is a decaying process. We're going to push that away. We don't want that in the presence of a living holy God. We don't want your body breaking down 
in the presence of the holy living God because that is death. Death cannot exist. It has nothing to do with your problems. It has to do with if you bring that close to God, he's trying to be kind to you because if you come close to him in the state of uncleanliness, you will die. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're going to die. He's trying to be kind to you, not discriminatory towards you. Your bodily fluids, those are the things in you that keep you alive. Your blood, your saliva, other things uh, that make children. Those are symbols of your life. And when those come out of you, it's like your life is leaving you. And so when those things depart from you, or if you have mold in your home, or if you have these diseases, it has not really to do with you being a bad person because God doesn't think you're a bad person when you accidentally get mold in the corner of your tent. Or if you're trying to have kids. You want a really good example? Right? Mary, whenever she gave birth to Jesus, had to go and get cleansed the ritualistic way after she gave birth to Christ. You clearly didn't do anything wrong when you're giving birth to the Savior. So these are just symbols and instances of lifelessness in the presence of a holy God. And he wants to be next to you without you dying. So that's what those are. So whenever you read them and you're very, very tempted to tune out the letter of death, understand that this is a God who wants to be near you. Okay? That's what we see there. And then we have these other bits in there where we get rules for sacrifices. You got five of them. They're offerings. Some translations are going to call them different things. You got three that are voluntary. You can give those for varying different purposes. Those are if you want to be thankful, if you just want to be near to God, if you want to show uh, an abundant gratefulness for the amount your harvest was or things like that. Those were voluntary. And then you got two other that were compulsory. You got one called the sin offering and one called the guilt offering. And the guilt offering was really just there that if you had any kind of guilt that you were unaware of, or if you had a guilt because you unintentionally contaminated something. So if, uh, if uncle, if uncle, you know, Bill or whatever, whoever, somebody passes away and you need to go carry the body out of the, the, the camp, because we can't have an unclean thing in the camp because we might die if we want to stay next to God. And you, you know, I mean, it's a lifeless body. You might stumble. You might do something. And let's say you kind of go, oh, no. And you touch somebody trying to brace yourself because you don't want to drop the corpse. Uh, when you touch that person, you then transfer your uncleanliness to them. You did that totally by mistake. You clearly didn't do anything wrong. That's what your guilt offerings are for unintentional uncleanliness that you might have somewhere. So we need to get this resolved so you don't die if you come before God. Whenever you bring the other offerings that you should be bringing voluntarily. And then we've got the sin offering. Now the sin offering, we're going to play a fun little mind game with you all here this morning. Uh, And I'm not going to get super into the weeds on this stuff, but it's just the truth. In your English translations, what's called the sin offering, the word sin there is not actually the best way to translate that. What we're really doing is we're trying to, the best way to translate it probably, according to a whole lot of people who are way smarter than me, would actually be a purification offering. 
And what we're going to do with the purification offering is you've done some sort of, and it says it right in the middle of chapter 4. Whenever you look at sin offerings, it'll just say if anybody has, uh, if anyone sins unintentionally, and if any of the Lord's commandments about things that you are not to be done, that you are not to do, and does one of them, it is appointed to bring this offering. Right? So that's just any given thing that you might have unintentionally done to violate the cleanliness that is required to be in the camp, to be near God's presence. That's what it's for. I feel like, though, whenever you get through Leviticus, you can get the entire way through Leviticus. And because you see uh, that we're, we're, we have a big problem. And if you don't see the big problem just yet, I'll point it out to you in just a, in just a bit. Because there's one other like, really, really big part of Leviticus. And it's kind of like the, the most important part of Leviticus. And that's in the smack middle of the book where it talks about the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur. Or Yom Kippur, if you want to be very, very correct. Right? If you don't know what Yom Kippur is, it's the Day of Atonement. This is the day where the entire camp comes before God. And the high priest is going to come in. And what he's initially going to do is, because the priests would wear these very ornate looking garments. These represent and symbolize the importance of being in the presence of a holy God. And yet, for portions of Yom Kippur, they take those off. So they lay aside their status and their personal holiness, and they put on just normal, everyday clothes. They put on linens, like just regular old clothes. And they carry out part of these procedures, so that way the priests represent normal, everyday people in part of this process. They understand that they're included in the sins of the camp and they need to be a part of this atonement process. And then whenever we actually get to the part of offering up the animal, they put back on their regular priestly garb. They call it this really funky thing you probably don't know what to do with. They call it the goat for Azazel. What on earth? (laughs) And how does that go into scapegoat? Well, what that is, is just in their minds, Azazel is the name that they give to the, just those spiritual entities that are outside of the holy space. We have to do with Yahweh. And so what we do is we transfer all of our guilt onto this thing here, and then we shoo it out of the camp. And this, this is not, they're not being polygamous. They're not worshiping Azazel when they do that. They're saying, hey, buddy. This belongs to you. And then they kick the junk out the door. It's like a living garbage disposal. And they put the trash where it belongs. This is not a reverent thing. So whenever you see Azazel, it's the scapegoat. They're just pushing the sin and degradation that shouldn't be in God's presence right on out the door. What Leviticus is doing is it's, it's building up to this day of atonement, this really important sacred day. And I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't catch it because there's this weird pattern going on in the book if you look at it from a flyover kind of view. So like at the beginning and at the end, you're going to have stuff about sacrifices, right? And then kind of in that next little chunk on both ends, you got some stuff that has to do with the priests, like their consecration or them actually doing their service and things like that. And then you've got these other little moments like this where it talks 
talks about random daily ins and out rules and laws like mold and, and your fluids and other things like that. And then all of a sudden, right here in the middle, out of nowhere, we have the Day of Atonement. And we have this building action all the way to this singular moment where all of God's people, all at once, in one moment, together, are atoned. And now he can continue to dwell with them. And we're good, right? We're good. We're not good. You're going to have to do this again next year. Right? You think Thanksgiving is a pain? You think your family's got stuff around Thanksgiving? Let's organize 12 tribes, put them around one tiny little tent, get them all in the same place at the same time, move all those kids, right? You think it's fun to try to corral them in a minivan. You put them in your cart and you don't get the, you don't, you can't threaten to turn them around. You can't just not atone for your children's sins because they're annoying. Like, (laughs) there's no threatening to turn this thing around. So like, You think we're good. No, we have to keep doing this again next year. And then the next year, and then the next year, and and it's just going to keep going on and on and on. You have to keep offering your sin offerings. You have to keep offering your guilt offerings. You're going to keep being unclean, and you're going to have to keep getting clean again. And if you haven't noticed, I said earlier, we got a problem here. This, This isn't even yet the problem. This is obnoxious, but this isn't the problem. The problem with all this is, uh, if you read very carefully, every time it says that somebody's done something wrong, you're either, you have two kinds of offerings. You are either bringing an offering in thankfulness or communion, or you're doing something for things you did unintentionally. So even all this madness and all this rigmarole here and all these symbols of life and death and needing to understand the importance of God is actually being really gracious to you when he provides you with Leviticus because he wants you to understand if you're not clean, you're going to die. We still haven't yet actually dealt with the problem of sin. Because all throughout the law, all throughout the Torah, there are these other things that you can do There's no sacrifice for them. There's none at all. Right? So, for example, the example scripture gives, it's like, it's kind of a funny example. It's morbidly funny, but it's kind of funny. Uh, If you are chopping some wood and you did not maintain your axe very well, and that bad boy, whenever you come down, keeps going, the head comes right off and conks your neighbor Frank right in the head and he's now dead. There's a way for you to be okay after this because it's unintentional. You can go and run and flee to a sanctuary city. You're getting ready to read about those, so I don't need to talk about them just yet. For the guy who got angry and took the same weapon and maliciously and intentionally goes over to Frank and the same result happens, there's nothing that person can do. The immediate thing is for them to be put to death. For the person who intentionally violates the Sabbath, you're getting put out of the camp. You're going to die. Put out of the camp. You're going to die. For somebody who assaults somebody else, 
physically, sexually. If they do this intentionally, you are put to death. If you commit adultery, both the man and the woman are put to death. There are certain things that are not covered for because Leviticus is about making a sacred space and making things holy. But we have yet to actually deal with the underlying festering problem. But that's okay. This pattern comes up all throughout the Bible. And there's another pattern that happens here. So I'm gonna, we're, we're going to see a, a very, very similar pattern here. So all of a sudden, we have a new guy who comes onto the scene. But whenever, whenever we look at all of Scripture, you're going you're gonna to see that here and here, We've got like Genesis and Revelation. And both of these tell strange kind of cryptic quasi-apocalyptic stories about angelic beings and a God who's creating things and about a God who's needing to punish this and not punish that to try to listen to the cries of the people who are oppressed. All these kinds of strange images, but the result is the same. God is with his people. God is with his people. Here and here, Genesis and Revelation. Then all of a sudden, you get these sort of historic, these kind of, uh, if we're working our way forward, we have historical stories, right? We have things about, hey, so here's what it's like to dwell with God, and then here is the stories of people living that out and varying different prescriptions that we do for those kinds of parts of life. And then we've got, you know, letters from prophets and we have letters from apostles, people who are saying, okay, here's what our God tells us. And then here's how you live that out in everyday life or how you're not living it out in everyday life is oftentimes comes up in the epistles or in the prophets. And then all of a sudden, right in the, not quite in the dead middle because the Old Testament is a bit thicker than the new, but basically in the middle of everything, chronologically, because a lot of your Old Testament books happen at the same time, uh, we have this new moment right here where everything builds up toward all over again. Right at the beginning of the New Testament. Where we have a Jew who comes along and he looks at this law that you have to fulfill and keep fulfilling day in and day out if you want to reside within God's presence, if you want to be holy. And there's barely anybody in society who can do it. The kingdom has crumbled. The only people who can do it, they're kind of some hoity-toity jerks over there, and a lot of people really don't like them, and it's just, it, everything's a mess. And he comes along, and whenever they, whatever they want at the current moment is a political figure who's going to come in and save them. The last thing on their mind is, what do I do with the mold in my basement? The ever-present thing on their mind is, what do I do about these Romans and these tax collectors and these bandits who keep stealing my junk and making life hard? And Jesus steps in, and his primary concern, what he says, is, I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to uphold and keep the law. All of it. Leviticus included. All of it. 
And he even takes a look at these laws. And he says, the laws that are already hard enough to keep, trust me, even if you think you're keeping them, you're not keeping them. Because he looks at those laws, right? Where he says, uh, do not commit adultery. If somebody says, I didn't commit adultery. And he says, no, 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 no. If you've lusted, you've committed adultery. And in case you forgot, according to that stuff, if you commit adultery, you die. I haven't killed anybody. He says, if you're angry, you've committed murder. If you murder under the law, you die. What on earth are we supposed to do with a law like this? How on earth do we use a law lawfully? This is why Paul calls it the letter of death. Because every which way you look at this thing, if you try to do it, even if you could do it, I doubt you can. But even if you could keep all 600 some odd laws that are in this thing, Christ tells you you're still guilty. You're going to die. So Paul, how do we use this thing lawfully? How do I look at Leviticus? What does this have to do with me and my life in the slightest? This day of atonement has to do with you. It has everything to do with all of this stuff. Because now we have a God who says we're going to deal with sin actually deal with sin. And in one day, in one moment, all at once, just like on the Day of Atonement, all of God's people, past, present, future, they're atoned for. And we know that this now takes care of the problem. Here's why. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout it, and in, in these laws, and all throughout Leviticus, when he talks about when you, when you kill the animal, and you do this, and you do that, and you bring the, the animal in, they sprinkle the blood, and they do this. And do, look where the blood is going. All throughout Leviticus, the blood is being put on the things used in the tabernacle. It's being applied to the camp. The worse your sin, the closer the blood has to go to the presence of God. You know, if you do a little accidental thing, then we're going to sprinkle some blood on the altar and you're good. You're going to go home. You do a big thing. And now you're really, really unclean. You have to get closer and closer and closer to the Holy of Holies and put the blood closer and closer to God because the offense needs more cleansing and you need to get closer to his holiness to deal with it. But in the New Testament... Before the moment of atonement, Jesus shares a meal with the apostles. And he takes wine and he tells them that this is the blood of my covenant. And the blood is poured out, not for the tabernacle or at this point the temple, the blood is poured out for you. It's applied to you. And we know from his preaching, he means all of it. Not just your mold, not just your fluids. He's talking about all of your other junk. Your lust, your anger, your adultery, your addiction, all of it. It's going to be atoned for. It's for you. I'm applying this blood to you. What's interesting is Yom Kippur is their holiest day. But Jesus didn't do this at Yom Kippur. Jesus did this at Passover. 
Passover is the beginning of the year for Jews. It's what they used to mark the new year, that holiday. And so your moment of atonement, which alludes to Yom Kippur, but is happening on this, on New Year's for them. We now have this symbolic action here. Of, this is God very deliberately saying that this moment, this is a new year, a new age, a new time for his people. You are atoned in this age. And Paul tells us, or not necessarily Paul, could have been Paul, could have been somebody else. In Hebrews, if we could pull up Hebrews 10, it's somewhere up there. We'll see. If, if not, don't worry about it. Um, but all throughout Hebrews, the writer keeps saying to Hebrews who want to relapse back into Judaism that they, that they, need, to, they need to understand Jesus is better than your sacrifices. And it says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to offer since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure and I said, behold, I have come to, to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Uh, and these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Amen. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for a while, uh, for all time, those who have been sanctified. And by the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts. And write on them on their minds. And he adds. I will remember their sins and their, law, and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer uh, any offering for sin. All of Leviticus is secretly telling you what it's about underneath this thick, thick layer of, 
of monotony and rules and regulations. Because actually right at the very beginning of Leviticus, Leviticus tells you what it's all about. It tells you what it's all about. Because right at the, we just can't hardly see it in English because it says, For the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. So that little phrase right there. In English, it says, bring an offering. That's not quite what it says in Hebrew. That's what you're doing there. But the word in Hebrew doesn't mean bring an offering. It means when somebody draws near to me, if they want to come close to me. The seemingly hard, rigid, stodgy book of the Old Testament that the entire Torah builds up to, and all of Leviticus itself builds up to this moment of atonement. This whole thing from the very first sentences has been about a God wanting to show you that he wants more than anything to be able to dwell with you. And that's what Leviticus is totally about. A God who wants to dwell with his people. And a God who atones and provides for his people the way to do this. Because we have a God who is revolutionary. Back in the day, people couldn't, they didn't know what their gods wanted from them. If it rains on a day when it's supposed to be sunny, you think you did something wrong, you've got to kill a goat. Maybe the God will be happy, maybe they won't. You have a God here who says, this is exactly what I need from you. He's not fickle. He's not harsh. He doesn't just willy-nilly change what he wants. He told them, this is exactly what I need from you. That's revolutionary. And then it gets even more revolutionary when the same God decides he's going to provide atonement for all time through one sacrifice, once for all. And we see the symbolism, it's, it's everywhere. You, act, you might not know it, but you actually secretly kind of live out parts of Leviticus and you don't even know it. Last week, whenever we had Baptism Sunday, right? Whenever I had the picture of the tabernacle up here, there was a wash basin. You cleansed the things of the temple in a wash basin. You cleansed the whole tabernacle. Guess what? When the veil was torn and the spirit departs, the spirit on Pentecost then came and filled God's people. You are now the new dwelling for the spirit of God. That needs to be cleansed. So we baptize you. You're being washed and prepared to be an instrument of God. It's not just a symbol of what God has done for you so you can publicly say things. This is also you being washed to serve a king and a kingdom. All throughout Leviticus, whenever you eat a meal with God, those are the most important sacrifices to God. He calls them most sacred, most holy. We're getting ready to partake of a meal. Knowing that it was a meal for the blood, for us. Not for an altar, not for some random tools for cutting up goats. It's blood for you. It's applied to you. And whenever you partake of this meal, God considers it most sacred. So whenever you read these things, understand this is a God who desires desperately to 
be with his people. We use the law lawfully by understanding that Christ said we can't keep it. It's a reminder of sin and error. But it's an even greater reminder that that stuff's been taken away and dealt with and paid for. And if you don't entirely know how to wrestle with that, grapple with that, live that out in your daily life, that's fine because Jesus summarized the law. People came up to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is this. And he quotes Deuteronomy, part of the law. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he says, and the second command is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. And in the moment where he said to love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus. So when you live day in, day out, knowing that the spirit is in you, knowing that the sacred space has been cleansed, and that you can dwell with God forever. We can be with God forever. Whenever we see baptism, whenever we see the Lord's Supper, whenever we love the Lord our God and love other people, that is using the law lawfully. And that's what Leviticus has to do with you today. So like I said, we're getting ready to observe Lord's Supper, or appropriately sometimes called communion, because it's us communing with God and one another as his body, as the church. But we're also, this is also going to be a time of response for you. And the band can come up, and whoever's assisting with Lord's Supper can get ready. Take time to meditate on to remember the God that made atonement for you, for us, for all of his people, once for all. But the sacrifice of Jesus is better, but the law is good. And hopefully now whenever you read Leviticus, you read it with a slightly new light, less monotony and a lot more humility, uh, humility and appreciation. If you want to just praise the fact that we can now commune with God, do it. If this is the first time you've ever heard about a God who wants to be with you and make you holy, not through some monotonous, arduous, struggling works of your own, but because he loves you and provided a sacrifice for you once for all. If you want to know what that means and to follow Jesus, come talk to me about it. I would love to talk to you about it. And in this time of response, also feel free to come up and grab the elements for Lord's Supper as well. And meditate on the most sacred action that you're getting ready to participate in. When you share a meal in commemoration of atonement with one another, with God. I'm going to pray for you all real quick. Father God, thank you for this day. For everything that you've done for us, for Jesus your sacrifice once for all. Thank you for the blessing of your provision of letting us know that you are careful to atone 
and that you have poured out your blood and your spirit onto your people to be instruments for your service, to be cleansed, and that we could share that sacred space with the world around us. I pray your spirit would do great work in all of your people this morning. Bless this time of communion that we take with one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.